Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I am excellent because I have not fallen into a volcano. How are you? <laughs> uh, well, I was at the end of the semester, and um, um, uh, my uh, scotch consumption has been minimized. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah. Yay, yes. Les, your liver is happy. Yes, uh-huh. Um, okay, so in previous in the previous podcast, we talked about the Commerce Clause. That's right. And, uh, and about the case with the mud flaps. And for <laughs> listeners... Just go listen. It's, there's no way that I can explain that to you quickly. It's it's rather involved and it's terribly amusing. Um, yeah, but and, I mean the, the the larger point is, uh, and again, you know, you know, the, the, this is a podcast about you know government documents. In this case, you know, the U.S. Constitution in a rather simple phrase. Right. Yeah. Oh, I get to read it. Yeah. So <laughs> this time in Article One, Section Eight of the U.S. Constitution, and you can check me on this if you want to, but it really does say. Quote, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And this is what they call the Commerce Clause. Right? That's right. That's the shorthand Commerce Clause. You know, whenever people want to threaten you with something, <laughs> they say Commerce Clause, right? And you're supposed to jump, which I'm learning is true because it's it's the root of all things in our in our country, apparently. And and it's and it's about economic behavior and crossing state lines and that sort of thing. But isn't there there are other cases that don't seem like at first blush that they would be part of this, but they are, right? Sure. So can you talk to us about <laughs> what grandma's Growing, growing pot, weed. yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Can you can, can you explain that to us, um, so that we will understand what the heck you're, um, what the heck this is about? Because I know that this is part of commerce, but I'm not sure I understand the case or how it relates to that. Okay. So uh, what Nia is talking about uh, is a pretty well known case uh, from this millennium, um, and that is Gonzalez versus Raich from 2005. And before we get there. Um, as I'm wont to do, and Nia's about ready to roll her eyes, um, we might want to go uh, and think about, um, you know, go back in time, okay? So, you know, put on your, uh, you know, uh, your, your seatbelts and get in your time machine, because we're going to go back in time a little bit. Um, get in your DeLorean. <laughs> yes. Okay. Ooh, nice Back to the Future reference. I'm just saying, if okay. we had a DeLorean, we would be out of here. <laughs> right. Sorry, folks. We love to make this podcast, but if we had a DeLorean like that, yeah, we we're would go. be going back and fixing some stuff. I'm just saying. Yes. Uh, the great Christopher Lloyd um, and Michael J. Fox. You know what I watched last week? Okay. This is wholly unrelated. Um Michael J. Fox in a, in, in, I can't believe this, because it's like a, a rom-com. It's a romantic comedy. Doc Hollywood. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a terrible movie. I love it. Yes, I know. I feel, it's like Teen Wolf. That's yes. a terrible movie, and I love it, too. I feel guilty every time I watch it, but there I am, like, two hours later, and I'm like, Okay, life ain't too bad. Oh, yeah, well, because he's Michael J. Fox. Fox that's and right. if you don't like him, that's like saying, I don't like puppies and kittens and other baby things. Speaking of which, uh, an animal plays an important role in that movie. Okay, nice pig, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who've never watched the movie, go see, it. Go see it. Yeah, you know, pull it up, right? <laughs> I was going to say, you surely you can get it now on Amazon for $1.99 or whatever. So anyways, back to the Commerce Clause, right? So we're going to go back in time. Uh, before the 1930s, before the Great Depression, uh, the Commerce Clause uh, for, you know, basically about 80 years, um, well, probably closer to about 100, 100 years, um, was interpreted by the Supreme Court uh, to mean that any good or service that crossed state lines, the federal government could regulate. But if the good or service uh, stayed within a state's jurisdiction, then only the state's uh, a particular state could regulate it. Okay, which makes sense if you read the thing. It this says among the states. States among the states, implying yes, crossing from it's one to another, another, not within the states. So, among constitutional law scholars, this is uh, referred to as a very formal, you know, strict approach of interpreting the Commerce Clause. 
and we political scientists called this era, so basically the late 1830s until about 1937, and we'll get to the importance of 1937 in just a moment, uh, the era is known as dual federalism. The federal government could regulate those things that cross state lines. States could regulate those things that stayed within intrastate, okay, within the state, okay? And it was, and that was, that was fine when the nation's economy was uh, predominantly agrarian, okay? Because if you think about it, if you had a farm and you only sold to people within your state, why would the feds regulate your behavior? If, on the other hand, you grew uh, cotton and you uh, sold it to uh, cotton mills uh, in New England, well, then maybe the federal government might want to get interested. Or if you wanted to go ahead and sell your cotton to uh, European nations, well, you know, that might affect foreign trade. Right. The federal and, and foreign relations. Foreign relations, okay. Yeah. So that was easy to maintain that kind of dichotomy. Where it gets really complex and confusing is when the nation's economy shifts to industrialization. Oh, wait. Can I, yes. can I make a guess here? Yeah. So 1937 is the first time that salad makes its way from California <laughs> to New York? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Why why the 1930s becomes really important is the federal government's response to the Great Depression. Ah. uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes into office, and he promises a new deal. And basically his new deal was, and we we kind of sort of tangentially touch upon this in other podcasts, the new deal was a paradigm shift in regards to which level of government, okay, would affect people's lives the most. Because prior to the New Deal, state and, to a certain extent, local governments were basically the level of government that most Americans had contact with, okay? Um, But with the New Deal, the federal government basically uh, took an affirmative obligation to address, first, the conditions of the Great Depression, but then, two, to kind of sort of regulate, if you will— what economists refer to as the negative externalities of the marketplace. And the Great Depression was seen as a kind of sort of catastrophic, if you will, uh, result of this new economy, manufacturing, industrialization, wild speculation on uh, uh, Wall Street and the stock market. Um, And the federal government takes on this role. However, at first... A narrow majority of the Supreme Court said, no, that's not the appropriate way to interpret the Commerce Clause. You can't go ahead and regulate what farmers do, and you can't regulate what banks do, and you can't regulate, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And this really upset Roosevelt. So these people who are in the government now who say we want to get rid of all regulation— want to turn the clock back not to the 50s or 60s, but to the early 30s. Oh, yeah. Well, like, they yeah, want to go yeah. back to a time when well, the federal yeah, well, government yeah. did not. Well, in fact, you could go back, you know, really the, the late 1800s, okay? That Supreme Court was just like, um, you know, lazy, the, the criticism of the Supreme Court in the late 1800s, um, and, and this came actually uh, in also another uh, uh, well-known Supreme Court case, uh, Lochner versus New York. New York attempted to regulate the the work conditions, the number of hours that bakers could work in bakeries because their concern was uh, many of these workers, when they worked too long, got exposed to um, uh, bakery dust. Okay, it affected their lungs, and there was also a broader concern that uh, if you worked long hours, this was bad for your health. Now, we now know this, okay, but back then, this was a kind of sort of um, novel conclusion. Uh, Lochner, who owned a bakery, challenged those regulations, and it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said um, the state of New York could not regulate those hours, that there is a, 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 a liberty of contract, 
that individuals have within the 14th Amendment's due process clause. Those in the dissent in that case accused the majority of reading a particular version of capitalism, laissez-faire capitalism, into the Constitution. Okay, So, you know, you're talking about a Supreme Court that struggled to adjust the Commerce Clause to a new economy, and when you get to the Great Depression, the effects of that new economy on workers, on, I mean, basically the the majority of the public. Um, And this all comes to a head in 1937. Roosevelt wins re-election by a landslide in 1936. And the Supreme Court, again, five to four votes typically, were uh, ruling that uh, major parts of his New Deal program were unconstitutional that the government could not use its Commerce Clause authority to regulate things that, as far as the court was concerned, only occurred within states. And Roosevelt gets so upset, he comes up with his infamous court-packing plan. Which we are going to talk about in another episode. Episode, yes. But but he wanted, didn't he want to put like 75 people on the court or something? <laughs> well, so, well, well, basically what he went ahead and said was, for every justice over the age of 70... Uh, a president gets to appoint a new justice because Rose. Cow, that would be all of them. Well, well no, at that's that, not true. No. Currently, they're not all. No, that, okay, well, I, I was being extreme because okay, well, several that, of them aren't. But several uh, of them are. You'd have a bigger court. Yeah, right? you would have a uh, you would have a bigger court. And at that time, four of the justices were over the age of seventy, and four all four of them were part of the narrow five-justice majority that were declaring the New uh, Deal unconstitutional. That's not a little bit personal. <laughs> right, okay. Which by, it, Why couldn't you just put a term limit on them and say you can't serve after 70? Well, that's one of the things that is now being discussed, okay, is to put term limits. But again, we will touch upon that in the podcast episode <laughs> about court packing. Because that's not the Commerce Clause, clause which we're right. talking about now. Okay, but in 1937, um, the, the Supreme Court, in part, according to historians and a fair number of scholars, um, uh, uh, at least one, if not two, of the justices began to change their votes about whether or not Congress could use the Commerce Clause to regulate this new economy. Uh, in particular, Justice Owen Roberts uh kind of sort of shifted his vote it's the uh, so-called you know switch in time that saved the nine justices okay Ah. but what you ended up seeing was the supreme court all of a sudden kind of sort of finds the new deal god as i joke in (laughs) class right they found religion right and they started to read into the commerce clause a much more expansive definition and it all comes to a head uh, in a rather infamous case, and it's the foundation, I'm, I'm getting there, it's the foundation for the Gonzalez versus Raish Grandma's Growing Pot case. The name of the case is Wickard versus Filburn from 1942. Roscoe Filburn was a wheat farmer in Ohio, and he grew extra wheat on his farm for personal consumption. Now, not just him, but his livestock and his family. But this ran afoul of uh, a a federal law, uh, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the AAA, okay, that basically put limits on the amount of wheat that wheat farmers could grow in the United States. And the reason for this was wheat farmers, like many farmers, uh, when the Great Depression hit, they saw their prices for their goods fall. So what many farmers did was they produced more of that good, but it had the effect of further declining the price. So the federal government stepped in and said, we have to go ahead and control the supply because if we don't, okay, the market or the, 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 um, uh, the prices will continue to fall and you know, we need to stop this. In other words, the federal government was going to save wheat farmers from themselves. So the government put limits on what you could grow, 
And if in a particular year, farmers in a, uh, with a particular food stuff or a particular uh, agricultural item grew too much, that's when the federal government started to buy surplus Ah, food. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Surplus wheat, surplus corn. Yeah. Okay. Soybeans. Okay. Et cetera, et cetera. Although, in fairness, I'm assuming that part of the reason for this in the 1940s, as far as wheat, as far as them wanting to grow more wheat, is that wheat is a is a drier crop. You can grow it with less water, and they were still coming off of off of the dust bowl, right? They were still coming off of struggling with some of that with their land. Well, that was some of it. I mean, the larger concern of the AAA, of the Agricultural Adjustment Act, was um, we need to, con- you know, the federal government needs to control the behavior in the market because if they don't, okay, it's going to affect the overall market for these goods in the United States. And they do, they did I don't know if they still do that, but they used to do that with dairy as well. Like oh, they do it they with a large number the of crops. Cheese, they would buy raisins, a, dairy, extra, all kinds uh, of stuff. Uh, and does it still is that still going on? No, oh, yeah, they still have it. Okay, so do they still um, limit the amount that people can grow? Um, it depends. Okay, uh, a lot of this now is tied to um, uh, foreign relations, international trade. Um, so, but they, they do to a certain extent. We just, we haven't had this kind of situation. I mean, even with the Great Recession of 2007 and 2009, the Great Recession wasn't about um, uh, agriculture, okay? It was about banks, insurance companies, the housing market, et cetera, okay? So, Phil Byrne grows extra wheat, he for gets, himself and his crops, not, in not his to sell on, to yeah, sell he on the was, side or anything. Yeah, he, it's he, for his animals. It's uh, to keep uh, his yeah. animals alive. Okay. Which he, seems like that should be okay. It should be okay, right? But um, he gets fined by the federal government. And one of his claims was um, this far exceeds Congress's Commerce Clause authority because he grew the extra wheat not to take it to the market, okay, but to use, okay, on his own farm, his own home, et cetera, right? Right, so he's not upsetting the markets. No. I'm, I'm with him on this. Yeah, it's not crossing state lines, okay? Right, and it's not going into the market, so no. it's not hurting other farmers. Farmers, that's right. It's not hurting the yeah. overall supply. It goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court by a 9-0 to zero vote. Now, mind you, I want you to keep in mind how quickly we went from early 1937 where a we're narrow yeah where a narrow majority of the court says okay congress can't use its commerce clause authority to do a lot of this stuff to the converse 9 to 0 they upheld the agricultural adjustment act okay and the court in the majority opinion by justice robert jackson said um any economic behavior that could uh, lead to a substantial impact on the nation's economy, Congress can regulate the behavior. So, according to Jackson, if all wheat farmers did what Roscoe Filburn did, it would have a substantial impact on the supply and the demand in the wheat market. And therefore, Congress can regulate it. Oh, I'm completely against this. Just so you know, I can. I'm sure you can see it in my face. Oh yeah, because I'm sure I look listeners, irritated. Listeners, you should see the look of shock and uh, anger. Uh, anger, like what? That seem what is fair. this? What is so, this BS? So what they're basically doing is they're saying to him, "You can only grow a certain amount. So if you want to feed your animals and your family, you can. You can take. You have to take less to market." You have to make less money yeah. than you would have made. Yeah, in other words, Roscoe had to go to the market to buy whatever he needed for his family when he could grow it on his own farm. That's bonkers. Okay. And this is known as the substantial impact test. If Congress can justify, okay, uh, a law dealing with economic be- you know, economic behavior on the grounds that it can demonstrate that an individual behavior— 
if replicated or in the aggregate could have a substantial impact on the nation's economy, Congress can use its Commerce Clause authority. And by the way, Congress, by the time we get to the 1960s, began to use this with civil rights legislation. So the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits uh, the owners of public accommodations, including hotels, motels, etc., okay, uh, the Supreme Court upheld uh, the section of the Civil Rights Act that reached into private sector behavior because the logic of the court was if, a, for instance, uh, uh, the, the case is uh, Heart of Atlanta, and I want to say it's 64 or 65. Uh, we will look that up and we'll post it as a link, okay? Um, but in the Heart of Atlanta case, the Supreme Court basically said if a hotel owner um, discriminated against, for instance, African Americans, okay, and enough hotel owners did that, it would have a substantial impact on the nation's economy. And thus, Congress can prohibit that behavior. Now, Congress's intent was to go ahead and stop having hotel owners in the Deep South not giving uh, rooms to African-American families who were traveling. But the logic was, okay, hotel, uh, hotels frequently serve people who are doing what? Crossing state lines, uh. one. And two, if a large number of hotel owners did this, this would have a substantial impact on the nation's economy. So, done absolutely not, of, not out of any moral or ethical obligation to treat people equally or, or with respect or... Well, I mean... I mean, that, okay, that you, doesn't enter into it. What okay. enters into it is it's going to affect the commerce of the, of the, okay, but of now the nation. You're talking about morality, right? Which the court doesn't rule. Yeah, okay. and, and the Constitution, okay, has <laughs> often been discussed, it's, okay, is not all that much about morality. It's about process and behavioral norms, right? Well, and hugely about property. Like the, oh, sure. the whole life, liberty, and the pursuit, pursuit of, of happiness yeah. was pursuit of property, right, for a long time when that— well, I mean, happy, happiness, drafts. okay, the pursuit of happiness is in the Declaration of Independence. Right, but in the, and in the Const- drafts, wasn't okay. it? Okay, in the Constitution, it's life, liberty, and property, right? Right. John Locke, right now, is so happy <laughs> in whatever grave, okay, or whatever remains of his bones, okay? Because, you know, Locke never discussed happiness in the Second Treatise of Government. He talked about life, liberty, and property, and for Locke, the most important of those three was property, <laughs> And when I say that in my classes, my students are like, but I don't own any property and I don't care about property. They're like, where's the happiness part? I said, yeah, that was, you know, Thomas Jefferson getting a little creative in the Declaration of Independence. Uh. And they're like, <laughs> really? And I said, yeah, and oh, yeah, by the way, he plagiarized big time in the Declaration of Independence. They're like, only an academic would say that about the Declaration of Independence. I'm like, well, he did. He borrowed from people and he didn't cite them. But I digress. <laughs> I would love to see a Declaration of Independence with citations. <laughs> that would be awesome. And you know who we would have check them? Bill Newman. Yeah, Newman. Because Newman loves citations and he's really good at them. So uh, can you see him having an argument with Jefferson? No, no, no. That is not how that is supposed Supposed to be. Supposed to be cited. Oh, my gosh. That would be awesome. Now, did you get this from Montesquieu or did you get this from Locke? (laughs) Okay. Or do we need to put both down? (laughs) Okay. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Okay. so, So that's 1942. Okay. Okay. And Philburn loses and he goes home. And he sells his wheat farm because this is crazy. Well, by the way, uh, uh, the little community um, <laughs> in Ohio uh, uh, where he lived, um, I think they got like either a monument or a street named for Roscoe Filburn. Huh. Okay, I want to take uh, my colleague uh, uh, Chris Saladino with me on one of our you know baseball stadium jaunts. Okay, <laughs> next time we're in Ohio, okay, I want us to like go there just so I can do that. You'd be like, really, dude? Okay. <laughs> I can stand under the street sign. <laughs> yeah, right. Every, right. Other people want to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and you want to stand under the street sign. Sign it says guy's in the Philburn. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Bring bring whole new meaning to the word goob. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so let's so let's move forward. Okay, okay. So we get back in the DeLorean. Now we're forward to when? Okay. 
um, the early 90s. Okay. okay? Uh, by the early 90s. Lots well, of big hair in the early 90s. Yes. <laughs> okay. So we get to the late late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, the Supreme Court is led by Chief Justice William Rehnquist. And Rehnquist was a huge uh, advocate for federalism and the Tenth Amendment. And uh, a series of presidents, Reagan in particular and Bush 41, um, appointed fellow justices to the Supreme Court who also, by and large, were supporters of federalism. And the Supreme Court begins to push back on the rather expansive reading of the Commerce Clause that you see in uh, Wickard versus Filburn. And the court begins to issue some rulings that at least would suggest that there is an outer limit to Congress's Commerce Clause authority. They don't clearly state what the outer limit is. Of course not. Okay. Because we love vague. <laughs> yeah, right? We love vague whenever we're coming to the Constitution. <laughs> right? Um, again, you got to, you, you listeners, you got to uh, you, you uh, give a listen to the, uh, the podcast episode we did about mud flaps. Cause it's, it's so hard. Right? It's so hard for me when, yeah. when it's just, it's so vague and random in parts, and then it's so very specific, specific. in other parts, yeah. you know? We're so, gonna we're gonna not deal with this commerce thing, but we're gonna deal with pirates. <laughs> like, really, we have we we have our priorities slightly out of whack, is what I'm saying. Although it was pointed out to me by um, Professor Artello that one of the reasons that they leave that vague is to let it be a living document, right? It's because they understood that or, if you want a document to grow with people and to and to grow with philosophical and moral well, changes in society, well, that's one you perspective. Have to do that. Uh, another perspective uh, as to why we sometimes get vague rulings is that some of the justices uh, believe that it should be the people's representatives in the political branches that um, implement the court's rulings. Okay, um, so there are a couple different justifications for why at times the court will come really close to the edge of issuing a definitive ruling, but then they pull back. You know, they'll, they'll pull their punches. Um, so, you know, Justice O'Connor, who actually served on the court during the 1980s, 90s, she was the first female uh, justice on the Supreme Court. That was her approach. She didn't necessarily believe that the Constitution was a living document. Her approach was we should answer narrow constitutional or legal questions and leave the rest to the people's elected representatives, because in her view, the court had a rather specific job, and in a democracy, who should make most of the decisions? The, the people. And they do that with who they choose to run the political branches, the Congress and the presidency. Okay? So, the expectation was, with the Rehnquist Court, that they would start reining in some of the federal government's extensive use of the Commerce Clause. Okay. And there are some rulings that did that. But then we get to um, Gonzalez versus Raich. So the, the, the issue in Gonzalez versus Raich is that we have a federal law, which hopefully many of you listeners know for various and sundry reasons. It's the Controlled Substance Act. It was passed in 1970 during the Nixon administration. And it... It's, I, it's yeah. part of his war on drugs, isn't it? Yes, part of the war on drugs. Okay, a war on drugs because because war on ideas. That's excellent. Yes, and yes. and war on things like drugs and poverty and, and, and yes. right yes. I mean, and terrorism. Right, yes. all these sort of things that yes. are very hard to put your arms around means that you can do a whole lot under that umbrella. Sure, the Controlled Substance Act um, has uh, a number of categories of drugs. One of which are Scheduled One drugs. Schedule One drugs. Um, are prohibited by federal law, and you can be prosecuted, okay, uh, for possessing those drugs, just, uh, uh, transporting them, selling them, etc. Marijuana is a Schedule One drug, and so is cocaine. Cocaine, right? heroin, methamphetamine. Means, like there's yes, there's yes, several things exactly. on that. 
on that list. But marijuana sort of seems to be the most innocuous okay. of them. Speaking of which. No, no. But speaking of me as a non-medical professional, do let me say that, listeners. Yes. I'm only ne- saying ne- that yeah, because yeah. Ne- neither one of us I, I just, is, I'm kind of assuming is, that from what I know yes, from yeah. public knowledge okay. of, of marijuana, not because I'm a doctor. When we get into the new millennium, there was a small number of states, California being the most prominent, that allowed for the uh, medicinal use of marijuana. So you have right, this like for pain management. Yeah, right? pain management. Uh, from you know what I know, there are you know certain other kinds of conditions. Uh, oh, epilepsy. Yeah, there are other things, things that are affected. affected. Okay, brain, brain um, uh, neurons. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but the Bush two administration, particularly Attorney General uh, John Ashcroft, okay, uh, were not fans of states doing this and in particular the concern with uh, california at least according to the uh, bush 2 administration was that california wasn't doing all that much to provide effective oversight to just make sure that people with medical conditions were getting approval uh, to either operate dispensaries or to actually get permission to be able to purchase small amounts, grow small amounts, and then use that for uh, various medical conditions. In fairness to John Ashcroft, and I can't believe those words just came out of my mouth. <laughs> um, I mean, th- the abuse of prescriptions is a very real thing mm-hmm. in the medical field, as we know during the current opioid crisis, right? Right, but, yes. So... That is not without some foundation. foundation. Yes. I mean, he didn't just make that up out of whole cloth. No. I know he made other things he up loved. out of whole cloth, but not that particular yeah. thing. He did have a reason for believing that that might be, that might be a cause for concern. And one could also remember that California is huge. Sure. It's huge economically. There's a lot of people who live there. Right. It's just a huge, behemothy type of state. Yeah, so this is before you know, uh, you know, you know, current time, you know, where we have 33 states and the District of Columbia uh, that allow for medical marijuana usage, and we have 10 states plus the District of Columbia that allow for the recre- uh, the recreational marijuana. So this is a different time, and again, this is only you know 13, 14 years ago. In Gonzalez versus Raich, Alberto Gonzalez, who was uh, Ashcroft's successor as attorney general, uh, brings a case uh, where the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, had arrested uh, Raich, who was growing marijuana. Okay, she's a grandmother, thus the grandma's growing pot. Uh, she grew small amounts of marijuana uh, for medicinal usage. And from what I recall, it was for pain management. Um, and uh, Raich, uh, with the support of the state of California, pushed back and argued that her uh, arrest and conviction uh, exceeded Congress's Commerce Clause authority. In other words, the enforcement of the Controlled Substance Act as applied to her okay, violated the Commerce Clause uh, because, as she pointed out, she wasn't growing it so she could sell it. Um, she didn't go across state lines to purchase it and then bring it back to California. She grew it at her house for her own personal medical use. Does this ring sound familiar to Roscoe Filburn, right? Okay. So when the case goes to the Supreme Court and the court agreed to hear the case, uh, constitutional law scholars in particular are like, okay, so how are the conservatives, you know, this newfound majority of the court that is saying there are limits to Congress's Commerce Clause authority? How are they going to rule on this, right? And in a vote, uh, it was six to three, uh, the Supreme Court uh, upheld the application of the Controlled Substance Act to race. And the majority opinion was written by John Paul Stevens. Now, he wasn't part of the kind of sort of new federalism crowd on the Supreme Court, but 
Stevens relied extensively on Wickard versus Filburn, and he said this. If mar uh, marijuana users all began to do what Raish did, it would affect both the supply and the demand in this market. And therefore, the federal government, okay, has the authority to be concerned about how that would affect the nationwide marijuana market. Which was illegal and shouldn't have been in existence in the first place. Okay, but again, right? we have black markets all the time. Right, but I mean, so they can regulate black markets as well as... Legal markets. <gasps> okay. I mean, regulate in the sense of not just shutting them down, but... Well, of we're, having we're, a commerce clause regulation of them. okay, but remember that's the whole war on drugs, right? The idea right. is it's to shut it down. Is is to make it so difficult to either satisfy your demand or produce supply right. that eventually, okay, uh, drugs will no longer be attractive either to suppliers or consumers. But that's insane and doesn't work. Okay, but well, whether or not a policy works, okay, the question is, okay, the does... The smell on your face is awesome. Oh, I you're love like, this, right? You're like, yes, Nia, it's insane, and yes, here we are. Okay, whether or not a policy works, okay, is unrelated to whether or not the government can create the policy. That's, but it's, okay. <laughs> okay. So the justices should have just said, this is stupid, y'all need to stop. Okay, now, one of the more fascinating things is when I teach this class... Okay, my students, and, and again, I am not with, you know, with whole cloth besmirching an entire generation of college students, but a fair number of my students typically will, like, one way or the other self-identify, okay, that they may be participants in this particular market. Or have tried it. Okay, so they're really upset with this, right? <laughs> and in particular, okay, <laughs> they're like... One, she, you know, like, you know, grew it for her own personal consumption. Right. She's okay. not She's not out there selling yes, on know, the street to yeah. small children or, you know. Yeah, grandma's not becoming not, a drug kingpin. Right. She's not addicting people. <laughs> right. And she may be addicting herself. No. But, but we tend to, in this country, believe that, like, for, for instance, alcohol. It's perfectly legal for me to consume enough alcohol to destroy my liver and to to do other things to myself that eventually lead to my death. And there is no regulation about that. I cannot, I can't, however, force something down your throat the way they do with hazing, right? Like, that's illegal. It's illegal for me to harm you without Yeah, it's an individual liberty argument, right? Right, so I'm with your students, and I'm not a person who, generally speaking, I mean, I've tried it once, right? But I'm not a person who uses marijuana, and I, I don't particularly have an opinion about it itself, but I have a strong opinion about this. I mean, come on. She, first of all, she's grandma. Hello. You're going to arrest somebody's grandmother? Like, really? For pot? Like, really? And the other thing is, if it's for personal use, I don't understand why anybody should end up in jail. And that's anybody who ends up with, I, I don't know. So, I don't understand it. Yeah. The, the, they I understand dealers. They, they, I understand trying they, to put dealers away. Well, they but, register both of those complaints. And then those with economics backgrounds are just like, so if the government's going to go ahead and regulate a black market, won't we just go ahead and legalize it and make money on and it? And tax it. Right. That's which, the other thing. Which, which I, you know, as I pointed out, the majority in this case doesn't preclude that as the policy because they basically have said Congress has the authority per the Commerce Clause to regulate this, if you will, market. They could. Right. And of course, all of a sudden their gears really start grinding. What to me, what's most fascinating is how most of my students, okay, find a lot of support with the dissents, you know, from O'Connor, Clarence Thomas, folks they usually don't go ahead and say, <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of, right? Because um, uh, uh, for Senator Day O'Connor, um, this is an issue of the state's police power. And again, making reference to our previous podcast, Okay, whether or not states can go ahead and regu regulate mud flaps on 18-wheelers. Um, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor says, 
if California decides for its citizens that um, a particular substance can be used, this falls within the state of California's police powers because they are they've made a regulatory choice for public health and safety. Do the other 49 states have to join California? No, according to O'Connor, they can be, you know, uh, more restrictive or less restrictive. But she says it's a state issue, not a federal government issue. Now, Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas has not liked the Supreme Court's case law, okay, about the Commerce Clause since basically Wicker versus Philburn. <laughs> he's, he's just like, okay, basically our, you know, our case law since 1937 has been wrong. We should declare all of those rulings, okay, as bad precedent and we need to go back to pre-1937, right? Now, he hardly, you know, he doesn't get any supporters, okay? <laughs> but nevertheless, it's, an, it's a fascinating argument because he makes it all the time with these Commerce Clause cases. And usually by the time we get to Gonzalez versus Raich, my students are rolling their eyes. Oh, that's, you know, that's Justice Thomas. But in this instance, they're like, well, maybe he's on to something, <laughs> right? <laughs> but the larger point here is, if you think about today, we have another dichotomous condition. According to the federal law, okay, the Justice Department, and in particular the DEA, could be targeting all those people in all of those states where it is legal okay, to either use it for medicinal or recreational purposes. But we've had back-to-back presidential administrations, one with Obama. I mean, Obama, the Obama administration was quite clear, and I think his exact quote when he was asked about it in a press conference, why they were not enforcing, you know, the Controlled Substance Act as it relates to marijuana usage. I think the president said, we have bigger fish to fry. Which, <laughs> okay, I can't say that I disagree, disagree. with. I mean, we got I an mean, opiate crisis, for goodness sakes, right? right? Okay. Right. Um, we have other and, things and, that are... We could target in regards to drugs. The Trump administration... Um, well, and we have a heroin crisis. Yeah, so we, I mean, yeah, yeah, okay. So I, I mean, I mean, folks, you know, talk to doctors and nurses in uh, emergency rooms in big cities, urban areas. Oh my goodness. In regards to uh, uh, fentanyl uh, overdoses, okay. I mean, because that's you know that's scary stuff. That's completely synthetic, okay. Um, and you know. From, from what I've read, from what users have, have reported, um, uh, it's heroin times like a hundred. Well, yeah, and apparently the first time you take it, you you become addicted to it. Yes. Like it's extremely addictive. Y- yes. and, okay. And then yeah. I, it doesn't take very long before it kills you. It's very, very unfortunate. I mean, well, and, and, and here's my heart the, goes out to the families it, because that's yes. awful. And then you also have Congress, okay, uh, in uh, the last like four or five budgets, have refused to give the Justice Department money to target marijuana usage and suppliers. So they refuse to go ahead and rewrite the Controlled Substance Act, but they send a very clear message in regards to the enforcement of the law. You can't target marijuana folks. Do they think that they, if they rewrite the act, they will lose? Yes. Elections is that? Yeah, I mean because public opinion polls. I mean for what is it? The last three or four years, a majority of Americans um, uh, uh, believe that marijuana should be decriminalized. However, if you break it down by age group, uh, the two, what is it? The 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 two, two or three oldest age groups um, still believe marijuana. Uh, is a dangerous substance and should be criminalized. And as we, again, talked about in a previous podcast... They vote. They vote, okay? They vote with money and they vote with voting. Yes. Like, they vote yes. both yes. ways. Yes. Because they do a lot of giving to and candidates. The, and the majority of the support for decriminalizing marijuana is from the two youngest age groups. And, you know, typically, historically, um, they vote the least. Yeah. And they give the least money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to PACs yeah. and things yeah. like that. Yeah, they do those five dollar things as opposed to the people who pay five thousand dollars for a dinner. Yes, to raise money. So, um, not that that's 
uh, always fair, but it is, in fact, the way it is. Yeah. So I tell you, that film Reefer Madness, man, that sticks with you. <laughs> right. That's what that's what's happened to the older generations. They're like, I saw it in a movie. It was terrible. Yeah, what will it do to our young people's minds? Um, but um, yeah, but they'll give but they'll give kids Adderall. I'm like, mm, OK. Sorry, that's just a personal, like, I I think that it's weird with drug policies because we're trying to make a a huge policy when many, many drugs affect people differently, like individuals differently. And so there are some people who can drink like fish and function, drink alcohol like fish and function quite well, relatively speaking. They can't drive cars, but they can function in other ways. And there are people who smoke one joint and they're messed up right so it's yeah it I mean, really and, is and, 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 a lot and, lot to do with your individual chemistry and, and again w- there are so many conflicting imperatives with this type of case right so you know you're talking about um individual effect and that touches upon individual liberty but remember this all starts with an interpretation of the Commerce Clause that allows Congress to regulate individual behavior that in the aggregate could have a substantial impact. And so much of federal government policy is not necessarily concerned about a single person. It's how do we go ahead and deal with the aggregate? So that's one competing, right. okay? You also have the competition or the balancing of federal government interest versus state interest. And again, in the previous podcast, when we were talking about why have a commerce clause, it addressed a deficiency in the Articles of Confederation. We couldn't, you know, the the decision of the framers was we couldn't have 13 states competing with one another because it would wreck the young nation's economy. Well, and if we let California compete with the rest of the nation, we would lose. Sure. We in Virginia would lose. Sure. Many, so, many states would lose. So historically, you have a balancing of how do we create a national economy while at the same time allow states to exercise um, authority that they've had pre-revolutionary war when they were colonies, which was the police power. Okay. You know, so if you don't like, for instance, recreational use of marijuana, um, you know, the thought is, well, then move to a state that criminalizes it. You can vote with your feet. But if you got a national... Or you can vote within your state to try to overturn. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. But, I mean, if you make a, a determination, let's say... You You're know, living in Colorado. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, whether it be Colorado, Washington, or any of the other, you know, 10 states plus D.C. that have decriminalized marijuana. If you don't like it, you, you can try to make the policy change. Or if you've come to the conclusion, hey, I am in a distinct minority, well, guess what? In the United States, okay, you can vote with your feet, move to another state. Yeah, okay? and if you like the temperatures in Colorado, just move to Utah. Uh, yeah, okay. It's very similar temperatures. Yeah, I mean, right? very similar, you know, so you have a in lot, some ways. You have a lot of balancing of competing interests. I mean, that's why, for instance, and these are probably my concluding remarks for at least this podcast, it's called, you know, democracy is called uh, an experiment in self-governance because we're trying to go ahead and figure out how do we balance things like, you know, individual liberty versus, you know, the interests of the collective, of the aggregate. How do we balance, okay, one level of government, the national, versus states? How do we go ahead and balance um, what we now know in regards to drug usage versus what was the assumption in 1970. Right. How do we go ahead and target the behaviors of the young, they may not know any better, versus, okay, outdated uh, ideas and notions held by the elderly? I mean, that's the thing about a democracy, Right. I mean, at some point, well, and the bigger we get, I mean, three hundred and thirty-six million. million. Of us, that's, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, right. I'm I mean, just saying. So, how do you go ahead and balance that, right? You know, I hear you know my students, the infamous millennials. Well, you know, you guys left this. 
Okay, fine, we did. So what are you going to do about it? Oh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but, okay, so let's try to figure that out, right? Okay. Versus, you know, I talked to my grandmother, and, 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 and you know, who's, you know, 94, and she says, you know, I can't believe, you know, you know, young people your age, I'm like young people <laughs> my age, okay, do X. So I'm like, oh, Grandma, you don't know, know the half of it, right? Okay. You, so you think I'm bad. Yeah, right? So <laughs> how do you go ahead and accommodate those interests of, you know, 330, you know, plus million Americans, okay, um, and it's self-governance, right? I mean, it's, right. you know, we're trying to govern ourselves here. Um, and, and then you take a sterile clause, a very simple sterile clause, okay? Congress can regulate. Doesn't mean they have to, but they have the authority to. So what is that authority? Well, in this particular case, the Supreme Court said, it's the authority to go ahead and target a grandma growing pot. <laughs> and with that... Uh-huh. Yes, with that, we are going to um, say thank you for listening, and we will link to this clause again. We will also link to the cases that have all been mentioned here so that you can read up on this. And, um, of course, you can find Augie's email on the on the guide if you want to send him email questions about the... Uh, he's not going to be able to act as a lawyer if you're having legal concerns sure, sure, in Virginia yes, yes. about perhaps using or being found with marijuana. You would want to get an actual lawyer for that, please. And then, um, by the way, I do not have any advice, though I get, oftentimes get asked by my students, on whether or not your grandparents should grow and use marijuana. <laughs> please do not ask me that. <laughs> So we will, and we are going to take up, I think, one more thing about the Commerce Clause. So you'll hear from us in one more episode about that. So stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you, Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.